He was my favorite teacher, and so when he walked in the door, I shouldn't have been surprised. He greeted us with a good morning, gentlemen. Glad that you're here this morning. Then he walked up to the whiteboard like this, and he drew this. I should have known what was coming, because in our midterm exam, he did the same thing. He drew this on the board. He drew a box. And then he drew a lid. That's supposed to be a lid. And then he drew a bow, and you don't want to see me do a bow, so I'll do that. And then he looked at us and he said, tell us about the gift. Write about the gift. My favorite teacher, who would introduce me to then what would become my favorite book, made this comment earlier in our class. He said, if you know the book of Hebrews, it's the key for the Old Testament. It'll unlock the Old Testament. The book of Hebrews is key to that. And then he said, you have to understand that two-thirds of the Bible is the Old Testament. But if you firmly get your head around this particular book, you'll understand the Old Testament. And gentlemen, your ministry will expand. The wonder and awe of who Christ is will expand. It will extrapolate. Know this book. Tell me about the gift. What he was doing was simply this. He was telling us that the new is in the old contained and the, in, the old is in the new revealed. That wasn't his words. That came from Augustine, a church leader in 350 AD. He was a bishop of North Africa church. And what that means is the New Testament is in the Old Testament, but it's contained, it's hidden. And the Old Testament is in the New Testament, and it's now revealed. It's the lens of Christ who's the gift and opens it up and says, it's there. And what happens in the book of Hebrews is we see shadows, we see foreshadowing, we see pictures. And then when we turn and we see Jesus in there, the substance takes on flesh. This is what is called, for theologians, this is what's called the Christocentricity of the Bible. The Old Testament points to Jesus. The New Testament boasts of Jesus. And when we look at it, it's not just the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's really the entire Bible. All of these books are pointing to Christ and pointing to Christ and pointing to Christ. So how do you summarize an incredible book for 25 weeks? How do you put that into words and boil it all down? On the back of your bulletin is a schematic a picture that we've used, and yes, we did get permission from the fellow in uh, the UK. We paid him actually to use that. But that gives you kind of an overview of the book of Hebrews, and I think it does a great job in that, and I hope that that will be helpful and beneficial to you. But I thought it would be appropriate, since we're talking about gifts, to give you a gift, to give you a gift on this final Sunday in the book of Hebrews. And so, in your bulletin, you'll find uh, some scripture memory cards. And this gift is for you to memorize, to meditate, to ponder, to commit to memory. And I think it'll be one of those gifts that after you initially open it and get that in your heart, it will continue to bless you again and again and again. And so this sermon is really going to be about taking a look at these four verses and unpacking these four verses. If you're listening on the radio or if you are 
watching online, you can go to our website, c3ec.org, and you can download these as well, too. I want to invite you to take part in that. So let's take a look at that first verse, shall we? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says this, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That word imprint takes, from, takes the idea of taking a ring and signifying the same ring, the stamp on the ring is who it represents. It represents the king. It represents God the Father. It represents everything that he is. And think about what the book of Hebrews did. It, it compared the image of Christ to a number of different people, ideas. The first one that the book of Hebrews does is he takes a look at, and compares Jesus to angels. Now, Jesus was a divine person, and angels were a divine person, but the greater gift Jesus, no angel was ever called the son of God. Jesus was. The second comparison that we walked through was the great prophets, and Israel had great prophets like Moses and Joshua, and they certainly were men of God, but none of the prophets ever said, I am, equating themselves with God. Jesus did. What a great gift. And this image of God was also compared to priests, and there were lots of good priests that the, that the children of Israel had, and probably some bad ones as well too. But no priest... No priest would ever consider his life worthy to rip the curtain between the holy of holies and all people. But this priest did, didn't he? He sure did. You can go down the list and talk about sacrifices. The sacrifices happened again and again and again and again. But this imprint of God sacrificed one time. And what did he say on the cross? It is finished. All done. This great impact, this great imprint finally fulfilled all covenants. There had been covenants and promises to God from God to his people. Think about the Abraham covenant. Think about the Noah covenant. Think about the Moses covenant. Think about the David covenant. Think about the covenant that God gave to his people again and again. And Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, said, I give you a new covenant, my body and my blood. I learned this week from our friends in Grief Share that Christmas is the suffering holiday. It's for broken people. Now, I'm not sure how that hit you, but that's not really the narrative of our day, is it? That doesn't sound like eggnog and ugly sweaters and Christmas lights and Rudolph and all that stuff. Why would someone say that Christmas is the sufferer's holiday? Because it's in the name of Jesus. Christmas is about Jesus. And what was Joseph told in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18? Mary will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, for he will what? He will save people from their sins. He steps into the mess. He steps into the dysfunction. He is the great gift. There's your first gift. Here's your second gift. Your second gift is from Hebrews 4.15. It's right up there if you don't have a bulletin. It says, and this, by the way, is one of, I love this verse. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who is tempted in every way just as we are. Just as we are. 
just, yet he did not sin. So let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Christ shows mercy to us. He gets us. He empathizes and sympathizes with our weaknesses. Oftentimes the law will prick our consciences and the demands of perfection or deceit of arrogance and independence like no one's going to tell me what to do. Inside, we have a natural ticker that wants to self-justify. If I do better, maybe God will love me. Or maybe the script says, I want to do good. Doesn't that count for something? But the law says very clearly, if you break just one law, even a little bit, you are guilty of it. And the great gulf between us and a holy God is as simple and as damning as that picture. Jesus gets us. He is the bridge-building priest. I have this best friend, Jesus, who really does get us. He understands loneliness. He asked his best friends to stay awake and pray all night. Did they? No. Jesus gets us. He understands betrayal. He understands blaspheming and cursing. He understands being overwhelmed. He gets us. And he paid his he paid the price for us so that we might approach a holy God. That's our high priest. Have you ever walked in on someone praying for you before? Have you ever heard someone's prayer life before? My mom came to know Christ before my father did. And my mom would often stay up late. She was a night owl. My dad was an early morning. So they kind of crossed. But I remember my mom praying for me. What would it be like if you heard Jesus pray? What would he pray? What would he say? That's not hypothetical, by the way. John chapter 17 is called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And the second half, or the last part of that chapter, John chapter 17, the subtitles in many English Bibles says, Jesus prays for future believers like you and me. What did he pray about? Well, many things he prayed about, but there are two takeaways. Number one, he prayed that we would be one or unit, unified as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are. He uses that word four times. He's trying to get our attention. But the second thing that Jesus prays in the high priestly prayers, he prays for us and we overhear him. The second thing that he prays for us is that we will be with him and we will see his glory. We will be with him and see his glory. Not just future heaven, float on a cloud, that kind of stuff, but now. His presence now. Have you ever been with someone who's lost a loved one and they said, I can't believe God's peace is holding me. God's presence is here. That's the presence of Jesus. What a gift. What a gift of a great high priest who empathizes and knows us. The third gift I want to give you is really is really one of my favorites, probably my top three. And it's from uh, Hebrews chapter 12, 1 through 2. And, and the reason why I like it so much is it combines athletics, history, my best friend Jesus, and then gives us the so what. It says this, Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, 
fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So let me just give you a little perspective. The picture that you're seeing right there is the stadium of last year's Super Bowl, 2022. Do you know how many people watched that? I gave you the answer. 114 million people around the world. That's a lot. But that's nothing compared to what's going to happen next Sunday. You ready for this? This is the stadium in Qatar. Qatar in the Middle East. That's in the, near the Persian Gulf. The World Cup's going to happen. Soccer. Do you know how many people are going to watch this tournament? Are you ready? Five billion people. That's B with a B. Now you may say, I don't care about soccer. Well, you're... You're not in the minority, you're in the minority now. Five billion people. Now the Bible doesn't tell us anything about numbers, but it does give us a time stamp. It gives us a little nuance of this being surrounded. And the time stamp is this, before chapter 12, it's preceded by chapter 11. And what's chapter 11 famously known as? It is called the Hall of Faith. And if you do the numbers, and you go back to Abraham, that's 4,000 years. If you go back to Moses, that's 5,000 years. And you read about all of these people, and they're not perfect. They've done missteps. They've done family messes. They've done family dysfunctions. They've goofed up. But the Bible has this little verse in Hebrews 11, verse 28, that says this about the hall of faith. And the world doesn't deserve these good people. Did you catch that? The world doesn't deserve these kind of people. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Some are really famous, some aren't. You want to read one? Write this down. Write this person's name down. Julie gave this to me about a couple weeks ago. She said, you got to read this story. Her name is Aggie Hurst, H-U-R-S-T. Aggie, like Texas A&M Aggie. Aggie Hurst Story. Wow. Only years later was the story played out. Only years later. Jesus' part in this is key. Your endurance is not your character or strength, but it is the Lord's commitment that he is faithful to his promises. He will never leave you or bail on you or forsake you. When difficulties expose and show our weaknesses, and our limits, it is not our strength, it is not our savvy, it is not our grip, grit. Don't panic or be anxious. Jesus is the treasure of the race. He is the author of the race. He is the perfecter of the race. Even in these moments when you fall, he will be with you. He will be with you. I read this story to our staff on Monday and I want to read it to you. It's entitled, How a Small Country Congregation in Texas Became a Megachurch Overnight. This is the story of how a small country church astounded the experts on church growth and became a megachurch overnight without even trying. The gravel parking lot in this Texas small town at St. John's began to fill every morning. The shadow from the steeple cast the image of a cross on the western side of the church. Families from miles around climbed out of Fords and Chevys to make their way into the sanctuary. And the pastor stood by the front to greet people. He asked about Aunt Susan's broken hip and the Reynolds new horse and how the football game turned out in the neighboring town the other night. 
Now, the man of God who shepherded the flock wasn't much to look at. He had a bit of a gut, <laughs> and he laughed too loud, especially at his corny jokes, but, he loved, but they loved the man, and he loved them. He baptized their kids. He buried their grandparents. He even preached a decent sermon or two. By the time worship was ready to begin, it still hadn't happened. <clears throat> and that shocking influx of worshipers I spoke at, in fact, it looked about as ordinary as ordinary as a church could be. The Kirkpatricks, with all of their kids, squeezed into the next last pew, way in the back. The old organist, Mrs. Schultz, played softly and hit, well, almost every note. Hymnals opened to the page where the service would soon begin, and at 10.30 sharp, Pastor Baker would walk up front, and he spoke the same words he did at the start of every Sunday. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the congregation responded with a hearty, Amen! Then, without warning, it happened. The floodgates opened. Worshippers streamed in. The congregation had just finished saying amen, and this small, tiny church was transformed into the mega of mega churches, and here's how it went. Through the stained glass windows and the steeply pitched roof, seraphim swooped down from heavenly purchase. Each sported six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And around the sanctuary, they chanted to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of St. John's quaked at the sound of their voices. The whole church swam with the smoke of incense. But that was just the beginning. Cherubim winged their way down from the heavenly city, not the cute, chubby, precious moment angels type, but strong warriors, stationing themselves like sentinels around the sanctuary. They belted out their words to the hymns. They added their amens to the divine word read, and they preached that day. But the angels were not alone. When them came saints innumerable, women and men who had fought the fight, finished the race, gone on to glory. But here they were. They were back at St. John's on the Lord's Day. They added their voices to the earthly choir of farmers and ranchers and coaches and teachers who still trod the pathway toward the heavenly Jerusalem. And the pews were packed. Standing room only in the aisles. Some perched on the rafters and peered down with serene gazes. The wonder of wonders was a throne. And on that throne sat a lamb. He was slain yet alive, sacrificed but resurrection, and every worshiper, angelic and human, earthly and heaven, was fixated upon the face of Christ. There they looked upon the countenance of the merciful Almighty, and with angels and archangels, with the company of heaven, with the people of St. John, lauded and glorified the name of that Lamb, the Lord Jesus, that day. Sacred song shook the building as the choirs wed their voices. The Lord's Supper was a reunion meal. The folks on earth and the saints in heaven dined on the feasts of feasts and the drink that slakes the deepest thirst, and it was a day to remember, a day to repeat. The following Sunday, it would happen again, and then again, in the tiny church at the seams with worshipers from realms seen unseen and seen. All mixed together, all in the adoration of the Lamb whose kingdom is without end. And that is how a small country church in our church becomes a megachurch overnight. Without even trying, we gather around the Word of God. We eat His meal. We sing His songs. And Jesus shows up. 
every Sunday with all of heaven along for the ride. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Amen? Yeah, there's one more gift. This one more gift would be inappropriate if I didn't share this gift with you. It comes from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 through 29. And it says this, Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be unthankful. And so we worship God acceptedly with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. As I prepared for this message, I got the kind of the giggles at home, and I was thinking, we have been talking about Jesus is greater, greater, greater for 25 weeks. Is there another word that we can look that we can use. And so I thought, I should have done this way back a long time ago. So I googled synonyms and antonyms for greater. Like, what other words could I use? And some of the words are great. Enormous, grand, gargantuan, my favorite one, ginormous. Isn't that just a fun word to say? But then I came across a synonym that I thought, well, that sounds like Jesus. And that doesn't sound like Jesus. And the synonym for greater that I came up with was higher ranking. Higher ranking. Why doesn't that sound like Jesus? Why does that sound like Jesus? Well, it sounds like Jesus because the Bible tells us in the first three words in the Bible, in the beginning, God. And the word God that's used there is the word Elohim, and it means powerful, almighty, strong, maker, but the word God there is actually a plural word. It's a plural noun. In other words, it's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 8, Jesus says, I was there when you created the mountains. <laughs> I was there when you created the streams. I was there when I created the, the lakes. That's Jesus, the high-ranking one. But at Christmas, we celebrate the fact that this high-ranking one took on flesh. He became so vulnerable that his parents in the middle of the night received an angel visit that Herod wants to kill the child and he had to flee for his life. But Jesus himself kind of tips his hand in Mark chapter 2 when he calls Levi to follow him, follow me, follow me, and then Jesus goes and eats at his house and that night he gets tagged and flagged and says, why are you eating with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners? And Jesus says this. He says, it is not for the healthy. They don't need a doctor. But it is sick people. I've called sinners to myself. And that's why he gave us his body and blood. He gave us his body and blood as this gift, as this new covenant that we take part in this meal. That when he died and he gave his life, he gave his life between two thieves. Two thieves. You'd think a high-ranking person would die in a more sophisticated way. But he identifies with us. And when he identifies with us, he says, this is my body and blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. In remembrance of the new covenant. In remembrance of what I've done for you. So I simply invite you before we take part in the body and blood of Christ to bow your heads and close your eyes and confess what the Lord knows already. You need him. You've sinned. Whether it's in thought, word, or deed, 
You need Christ. I'd invite you to just pause and reflect on that. Lord, you hear the prayers of your people. You hear our prayers as we come before you. The Bible says that we can come before you and confess our sins. You are faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Your word has given us this beautiful promise. Jesus even said, God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Amen.